Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Skyline, so glad you're all here this morning. My name is Jonathan. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm just always so grateful to be at church and to be with God's people, um, worshiping Him and experiencing His presence. Um, there's just really nothing like it in the world, like the church, um, when she is really focused in on Jesus. And um, last week, I don't know how many of you are here, we. Um, Really got to witness some incredible stories of transformation through testimonies. And it was just an amazing morning. And if you weren't here last week, I'd highly encourage you to go listen to the podcast because we had, I think, seven or eight testimonies. And it's been really cool to watch how much hunger in our church has been stirred this week. Because when you hear God's story of how he pours out his power in people's lives, it just kind of awakens something in us that says, man, I want, I want to know that kind of power. I want to experience God in that way. I want to see him transform my life or people that I love. And I just love that, that hunger. And so this week, I was going to start a series on uh, the fruits of the Spirit, move from the gifts of the Spirit to the fruits of the Spirit, but it really felt like um, I want to address kind of what we talked about last week a little bit and what the source of all those stories are, because it's really key to who we are as a church. And um, I sense the Lord just encouraged me to go back to the beginning and to remind us of how and why these kinds of stories are happening in our church. And the cool thing is, last week we shared seven or eight, we could have shared a hundred and that's not bragging, it's just the reality of, of what's happening in people's lives as they seek the Lord. And so I, I feel like God wants us to just continually focus on who is the source of transformation. How do people change, right? That's what's the key question is how do I change? And people's lives here are being changed not because we have good preaching, obviously, or awesome worship, or a beautiful building, or lovely people, Right? It is the presence and power of God through prayer and worship. As we stir up his power and his presence, he meets people. And when you meet God, you change. There's no choice in it. There's no, there's no like, oh, do I want this or not? It's just when you meet God, your whole life changes. And so about four years ago, we had this calling on our church to reorganize and reorient everything about this church um, to create a place of presence for our city, a place where people can come and meet God. That's the goal. It's like we want people to meet God, and we just really felt that Jesus' call, when he says, my house should be a house of prayer, we want to reflect the heart of Jesus for his church, that the presence of God would be the defining marker of the church. And so that's our hope, is when people would 
talk about Skyline Church, they would say, oh, that's a place you can meet God. <laughs> that's a place where God's presence dwells in the midst of the people. And when you move in that room or you move around those people, you just sense God's presence. Now, here's the key. We didn't make this up. So we're not really smart, you know, or, or have like just incredible vision. All we did was look at the Bible and say, who does God say he is in the Bible and how does he work over time? And you see it, the entire Bible is a story of God's desire to dwell with human beings, to live with them, amongst them, in them. You start in the garden, right? And then you go into the wilderness, and then you go to the tabernacle, then you go to the temple, and then you go to Jesus Christ incarnate, and then you go to the church in Acts, and then you go to the city of God in Revelation. You go from start to beginning. The Bible is a story about a God who wants to know and live with human beings in close communion, right? He wants to be with you. I love Jesus called his disciples. He said, I'm calling you to be with me. Like the first calling of a disciple is not to go do anything in the world for God. It is literally just to be with him. Isn't that good news? It doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Promise you. So God wants to dwell in and amongst us with his power and presence. Moses in Exodus 33. This is such a key scripture. God gives Moses this call to lead the Israelites through the wilderness into the promised land. And Moses says back to the Lord in, 30, in Exodus 33, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have, not let, uh, you have not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Key thing there, if you need rest in your life, you better find the presence of Jesus. It's the only place on this earth where you actually can find real, true rest is with him. He says, I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, listen, this is key. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I love, he's like, if you're not going, we're not going. So much of the pain in our life is when we get ahead of the presence of God. When we say, God, I'm going to go here and I hope you come with me. You kind of expect him to trail behind you and clean up your mess. Instead of looking at the Lord and say, Lord, if you don't go, I don't go. I'll wait till I see where you're going. But he says this, how will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the people on the face of the earth? Key thing. Moses has identified this key thing with God. It's not the Ten Commandments that sets them apart. It's not, you know, the fact that uh, they do circumcision. It's not where they're going to end up on the land. The thing that sets them apart from all peoples on the earth is the presence of the living God. That's it. His presence makes them different than all other peoples. And we know that's true of Israel, and, but we also know it's true of the church because of the presence of Jesus. It's the presence and power of God that sets us apart from all other peoples on earth. And this is really key because if you lose this, the source of the presence of Jesus as the center of the church, his real living presence through the power of the Holy Spirit, right, the wheels start to come off of Christianity. If you don't base your life off of a real living relationship face-to-face -face with God, the wheels start to come off of Christianity, when the church becomes about the rules or about morality or about doctrine or about power or wealth or anything else, 
We stop organizing our, our, uh, our lives around his presence and we begin to subtly and slowly trust in other things. We begin to start to put our trust in what we can do in the world, how much money we can attain, what kind of power we have, or how good we are at doing all the stuff, like the rules, right? And as the spiritual power of the church recedes in relation to that, you have two choices. You can repent and return to the original plan, or you can clutch to those things and basically just ride the wave down. I mean, and we're seeing it right now in our culture. We're watching a, a large portion of the, of the Christian church just ride the Western wave of Christianity down. And I mean, it's just going down. And it's scary and it's sad. And you start to see what we're seeing today. You start to see leaders fall, right? How many of you guys have been watching? I hope you're on Twitter too much. But if you're on there a little bit, if you're in any part of like Christian Twitter, you just see pastors falling, Right? Leaders just, I mean, falling from grace. And I know you might say, oh, this is always happening. And yes, people are always sinning. So we shouldn't be super surprised when people sin, right? Um, especially if you know yourself at all. I'm <laughs> like, well, I, I, I struggle with that, so probably other people are. But it feels to me like there's been an acceleration of leaders falling. And it feels like something's going on, something's wrong, something is off, in this idea of who the church is, what we're supposed to be, and it's getting manifested in the lives of leaders, of people who serve on platforms. It's almost like, uh, so somebody said at one time, if you have a sick city, you have a sick church. And I'd say it's the same. If you have a sick leader, you, you probably have a sick community, right? Because there's this thing of we're living together. It's, it's, it's what's happening many times is getting reflected back and forth. And so here's, if there's this thing that we recognize something's off, then how do we rediscover the biblical pattern of God's blessing on his people? I think that's the key. Jeremiah 6 says, I stand at the crossroads and look. I seek the ancient paths, and when I find them, I walk in them. I love that. I don't just look at the ancient paths. When I see it, I go back to wisdom. I go back to the things that have always attracted the power and presence of God. There's tried and true patterns of living. That's why we did a whole series on Proverbs. Because we believe there's a moral order to the universe. And when you live in certain ways, it attracts God's power and presence for your life. Is it foolproof? Does it mean your life will be gravy all the time? No. But it means you avoid all the self-inflicted pain of disobedience or of the lack of wisdom in your life. And so, this pattern, I wanna, I'm going to study this morning, if you'll just kind of take a journey with me um, into the life of David and, and Israel. And um, the story's really long, so I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing through it. We're going to pop through some, some scriptures, but I encourage you this week to go from start to finish and read David's entire story in Samuel and in Chronicles and see this pattern play out in David's life. Right? So David, King David, he was born in one of the, like, the bleakest eras of Israel's history. They were at a crisis of leadership, very much like our time. Right? So any crisis in a nation or in a church or in a family, it's almost always a crisis of leadership. It's where the leader has been disconnected from something they need to be connected to. They were, they were in need. Israel was in need of a full-blown rebuild of everything in their nation. 1 Samuel 8.3 says this. They're talking about the prophets. And the priest, it says, they've turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and they've, per they've perverted justice. Now, 
Okay, so this is talking about the people who are supposed to be most spiritual are the ones who are actually furthest away from who God has called them to be. Not only this, but they had rejected God's servant Samuel. They're like, Samuel, we don't want prophets anymore. And they reject God as well. Listen to this. They say, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all other nations have. That crazy? So they literally come together. They call a meeting to reject God's kingship over them. Not wild. They're like, hey, listen, we don't want God as king and we don't want prophets as intermediaries. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. Isn't that interesting? God says, I will be like as a king unto you. I'll be God amongst you. You won't need a king. And they said, no, 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 no. We want, well, we'd rather have a king. God says to Samuel, Samuel's so broken and upset. God says to Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God's dealing with this like heartbreak about his people who just said, no, no, we don't want your kingship. We want a human king. Samuel warns them of all the dire consequences of this choice. He says, listen, if you choose a human king, here's what's going to happen. He's going to put you to work to build his stuff. He's going to conscript you into his military. He's going to take your wealth and acquire it from him. He's going to do all this stuff. And still they said, no, 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 give us a king. And God in his mercy gives them what they want. But it shows this pattern of human beings as we constantly look to place someone in between us and God. We're always looking for like a mediator because we don't want to come face to face with God. We're like, give me a pastor, give me a leader, give me a podcast, give me a book, give me a devotional so that somebody else can hear from God and do all this scary stuff and I'll just take the morsels instead of getting into his presence like he's designed us to. But even with this rejection, God in his kindness promised that things would go well as long as the king would listen and obey to his word, listen and obey his word, and humbly submit to God's leadership. 1 Samuel 12 says this, right? But again, their leadership failed them. They choose a king. They choose Saul. Why do they choose him? Because he's tall and handsome and powerful. He represents to them what earthly leadership looks like. They're like, that must be a leader. They choose him, and it turns out to be a bad choice. Saul ultimately rejects God's words. He, he rejects Samuel's prophecy. He ends up at the low point seeking the counsel of witches. <laughs> he literally goes to seek the counsel of demonic spirits rather than submit his life to the Lord like he asked him to. And so what happens? Everything falls apart. He trades the truth for a lie. Romans 1 says this, right? For although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. Isn't it interesting? Worship is at the core of the rejection of God. The refusal to worship God is at the core of idolatry. Nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened to the point to seek the counsel of demons. That, I mean, that's crazy. Think about where, where your life has to be. So now, now, in the midst of this, Saul was not only outright in rebellion against God's word, the core of all this, that he had abandoned God's presence. Remember, Moses said, if your presence goes with us, we'll go. Your presence is at the core of everything. But under Saul, they completely ignored this. The Ark of the Covenant, right? Which represented God's presence in the midst of Israel. Um, 1 Chronicles 28 says, the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God. Isn't that interesting? Wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, God's feet are elevated and he's at rest in the midst of his people. What happened to the Ark? They had abandoned it. 
They left it in the wilderness. The Phil- Remember the Philistines steal the ark. The Israelites get it back and they leave it at, uh, what, what's the name of this place? I'm going to butcher probably the uh, pronunciation. Kiriath-Jerim, 1 Samuel 7. And it sits there for 40 years. They leave the presence of God completely out of their nation. And they just go on about their business. And I'm sure in many ways they're, they're doing some of the same rituals and they're trying some of the same things. And yet they're just doing this. Everything's going downhill. Enter David, right? David, they, that God chooses David. And he says, listen, I don't choose as a man chooses. He, he, he's like, I choose from the heart. He sees in David's heart that David's a man after him. David's a man who's been shaped by worship in the wilderness. Says that David would watch over his flocks and he would just spend time out in the wilderness, just him and God praying, worshiping, singing songs, watching after the life that God's given him, content in who he is and who God is, not needing anything else. The thing that, that enters David onto the scene is when somebody threatens God's glory and beauty and majesty and power. Right? This threat of Goliath against God, not even against Israel, against God, awakens David's heart. And he says, mm-mm, not on my watch. <laughs> I love that. He's like, put me in the game, coach. I'm here. So, so God brings David out. David's anointed by God to replace Saul. He endures all this incredible amount of fear and pain and loss to become the king of Israel. But all of God's promises come true, and David becomes king. And this is where we hit the key scene that I think matters for us today. What happens when David becomes king? What he does is really fascinating. What does he do? What are these key acts when David becomes king? First Chronicles 3.3 says, David says, let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire it during the reign of Saul. His first act as king is to restore the presence of God to the center of the community. He says, we've gotten off course If we don't have God's presence, we have nothing. If we have God's presence, we have everything. Because God promises he'll fight our battles for us. I mean, he's like, even this story before the ark of the Lord went, the angels of God would show up and literally defeated the Philistines without the Israelites doing anything. Psalm 24 describes when David brings the ark into Jerusalem. It says this, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Imagine the Israelites shouting and singing this song as they carry the ark back into Jerusalem to set it where it belongs, where God reigns in the midst of his people. David knew that it was God's presence which had made him successful and the lack of his presence which made Saul fail. His first decision wasn't to secure the borders, expand the military, or institute economic policy. It was to place God at the center of Israel like he asked them to Isn't that beautiful? His first act is to place God back in in his primacy amongst his people, to say, we are here for him. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He doesn't hesitate. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The first commandment above everything else is to love him. God doesn't ask you first to do a bunch of stuff for him. His first ask is for affection, adoration, uh, commitment, fidelity to him. He's like, we're like a married couple. You've made vows. I want you to keep them to me. And not just out of like, you know, because I have to, but because I'm so knocked down, head over heels in love with you, Lord, I will do anything. 
How many of you parents have had a uh, like teenager college student who has fallen in love? Anybody seen this happen? Right? And what happens in, in, in a guy's life when he meets that girl? It's like, Jonathan, like late night. What, what did you describe? Sitting on a washer in Montana in a laundry room talking to Brie like all night. Like that's what you do when you fall in love. You're just like, whatever it takes, I'll be there. Where does she hang out? She's like, what are you doing here? I'm always here. You've never been there in your life. You're like, it's like the only point where stalking is cool. You're like, it's fine. As long as, you know, and, and it's just this thing where your heart is leading you in pursuit. Jesus says, that's what I want from you. And I want it not just from individuals. I want it from entire groups of people who all their collective heart is like, Ugh, reaching for him, after him, loving him. David says, this is what Israel's about. What does he do next? He returns Israel to its priestly calling. So not only does he put the presence of God on display in the middle, he also says, hey, let's remind ourselves, right? Exodus 19, God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But David restores this priestly calling of Israel that there are goal on the earth is to steward the presence of God for the nations. He tells Abraham, I've blessed you to be a blessing. With what? With my presence, with who I am. He says, you're a kingdom of priests. So David went down and he brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with what? With rejoicing, with worship. They're, they're carrying every six steps, they would stop, set the ark down, and they'd sacrifice animals. Because <laughs> the first time, remember, he tried to bring the ark they didn't carry it the right way. A guy touched it. He died. And David was like, oh no. So he set the ark in Obed-Edom's house. This guy got so blessed by God. He's like, okay, maybe this was more about us than about the ark. So he says, let's bring it back. Can you imagine how long it takes to get about, you know, probably I think it's about 10 miles if every six steps you stop and sacrifice an animal. And then six steps. And he's like, we're going to bring this thing with the honor it deserves. We're going to treat God's presence as holy and righteous and pure, and we're going to do this the right way. So he did this. Um, he, he sacrifices the bull and a fattened calf. David, listen to this, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. David went to the priests and said, hey, give me some of your gear. <laughs> and he dresses up like a priest, and he leads the processional. He's, he's like literally breaking the rules to honor God. Isn't this fascinating? He says, because the king of Israel should be the chief worship leader. That's what leaders in the kingdom of God should look like. They should be the most desperately in love with God, the most sacrificial, the most submitted, the most humble, the most kind, the most gentle fruits of the spirit. This person should represent that. It's not that they're the smartest, give the best sermons, have their life together all the time. It's like, no, 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 David's a man after God's heart. He danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark with the Lord uh, with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Then it says that he builds a tent in Jerusalem, builds this tent, he places the ark in the center, but you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't put a veil around the ark. Isn't this weird? He, again, he breaks the rules. He says, no, 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 no veil this time. God's going to live in our midst with no mediation. And he invites everyone in, men, women, children, even Gentiles. Obed-Edom, the guy who housed the Ark of the Covenant, gets invited to join the worship team. And there's a Gentile standing at the Ark of the Covenant, worshiping. 
ministering to the Lord. The veil, it's this pre-picture, right, of Jesus. The veil of the Holy of Holies getting torn. David does this thing that he's like, we're all priests now. There's no difference between any of us. Everyone can minister to the Lord. Everyone in the tabernacle together, complete access. And then the last thing David does, he, you know, he restores the presence of God to the center. He returns Israel to its priestly calling. He restores the prophetic ministry of Israel, right? Saul got rid of the prophets. These people in there are like, we don't want the prophets. And David, one of his first tasks is to restore prophecy. Hearing God's voice and speaking it to people, he restores that to the center of the church or, or the temple. David, together with the commanders of the army, this is uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 25, set apart son of, some of the sons of Asaph, Haman, and Jadathan, um, it's kind of sound like Jonathan, Jadathan, um, for the ministry of prophesying. Listen to this, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. He puts worship and prophecy at the center of this gathering. What should we do when we get the ark here? We should all be involved and we should start singing and praising and speaking God's words to each other. First Corinthians calls this comfort, strengthening, right? Oh, it's, it's so beautiful. He restores this prophetic ministry of Israel. David captures this thing and it's really fascinating if you study Revelation 4 and compare it to David's tabernacle, right? In Revelation 4, God's the king. He's at the center of all activity and worship in heaven. David takes the ark, God's presence. He puts it in the center of this tent. And he said, God's in the middle. This is all about worshiping him. In Revelation 4, four living creatures with the gift of sight lead perpetual worship in heaven. In David's tabernacle, four prophets lead worship in Israel. They're seers. They want to see what is God doing, what's he saying they're in the center of it. In uh, Revelation 4, there's 24 elders who worship day and night in heaven. In David's tabernacle, there's 24 elders who lead 24 worship teams, and they do literally 24-7 worship. It says, like, may worship never cease in this tent. I don't know if God gave David a vision of this, or he just was so connected to God's heart when he created something. He literally created a reflection of the throne room. Perpetual worship in heaven, perpetual worship on earth. One person said it this way. He said, David gave his people the gift of a perpetual open heaven. Woo. The temple, the tabernacle is the place where heaven meets earth, where these two worlds become one. I love that quote. If I could give anything to our city right now, it would be a perpetual open heaven. That's it. So that people could meet Jesus face to face. That's it. I think in our generation, if this church could give our city one thing, it would be a perpetual open heaven. That God's desire to know human beings would be expressed in a people and a place, and they could say, where could we go seek the Lord? And they'd say, I heard of this little group of people. <laughs> and there's a room where people do this over and over and over again. That's why the church exists, and I think that's why this church exists, to steward the presence and power of God for a city. And the stories we heard last week were catalyzed by the presence and power of God. That's what happens when his presence and his power gets poured out. People change. People's lives change. So I want you to hear this even more personally. Your worship in this place around this people has produced change in others. 
It's created space where other people can meet God. Your intimacy with the Holy Spirit matters because it produces change in other people. Jesus looked at his church and said, what could I give them when I leave? And you know what he did? He said, I'm going to give them my spirit so that they have a perpetual open heaven to me. They have complete access to the Father through me at all times. So that's it. We want to be a people of presence, the presence of Jesus on earth. And I look at David and I look at what we've done the last four years. We've tried to restore the presence of Jesus to the center of the church. We've tried to restore the priestly calling of all Christians who say your first identity is not as a minister to the world, but a minister to God. You were made to worship him, to love him, to honor him. And then all the other stuff in your life actually flows out of that, and it flows out really easily if you do the first thing really well. That's why Jesus says, seek first my kingdom, all these things I will add unto you. That's why he says in John 15, abide in me, and I will, you will bear much fruit. Right? As Billy would say, you don't even produce it. You just bear it. It just comes out of your life when you're connected to Jesus. Guess what? If you're not connected to Jesus, being a Christian is really, 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 really hard. It feels like work and rules and judgment and all the stuff. But when you just connect your heart to him, all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I, like my heart is changing. And all of a sudden this stuff starts coming out of you like forgiveness and gentleness and love and restoration, you start to see people get healed and saved and delivered, and it just becomes the normal operation of your life is to see God at work. It doesn't become, it's not abnormal anymore. So that's what we've tried to do, and um, man, it's been really beautiful, but what I felt like God's saying is if you do that, he will do everything else, right? If you'll just create a place where he can meet people, he'll take care of everything else. And so right now, this little church called Skyline, we're about 15 years into it, and we've been like an undercover success for a lot of years, right? Um, I, I always laugh because people are like, oh, see Skyline. They start like, I love Skyline. They start describing it, and halfway through, I'm like, they're talking about Frontline. And we love Frontline. I know those guys there, and I just be like, oh, it's great. It's great. And they just walk off thinking like, man, I just really encouraged that guy. That felt so good. And I was like, Okay, that was good. It's great. Thanks, Lord. Humility. He's like, I'm just going to humble you. No one's going to know who you are or what you're doing for a really long time. But in the past four years, as we've invited God's presence, our church has grown. We're seeing people come as they hear what God's doing here. And I praise God for that, but I have to be really careful as a leader that the growth that God is bringing doesn't actually kill the thing that brought the growth. Right? That we don't get diverted or distracted from why we're here and what we're doing that is producing life change. Right? Because then you start chasing the life change. You start chasing the experience. You start chasing, chasing like the platform. And instead, the thing you're doing starts to weaken. And I think God is just saying like, um, man, this pressure that comes with more people, it's like you're supposed to add a bunch of things for all the people who come. Um, but I just wanted to say this morning, we've invited God's presence here, and I, and I just felt like the Lord saying, Jonathan, I want you to make me a promise. I want you to make me a promise that you won't add anything in this church as it grows that doesn't add to my presence being more honored in this place. That's it. If you, if you add anything, add, th add fuel to the fire of my presence, that there would be more worship, more prayer in this room. That's it. That's what you add. Don't worry about anything else, because if we have that, we have everything. 
Right? Our, our friends at Upper Room in Dallas, I love it. They says, uh, our, the only person our church is meant to reach is Jesus. <laughs> and if he shows up, everything's great. Isn't that good? The only person we're trying to attract is him. If he shows up, everything else is great. And it turns out that is so true because our, our ultimate goal isn't to build an awesome church, but to bring revival on the earth. That's our, that's our, 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 if our city could change by awesome, uh, awesome churches, we would be changed. Oklahoma City has more awesome churches than any other city I've ever been to. And yet, we are not having revival in this city. So what's missing? I think what's missing is the church recentering on the presence of Jesus. And we see over and over again, every single time Israel uh, reinstated the Davidic tabernacle model of worship, they had revival. He had a Jehoshaphat in Second uh, Chronicles. He had Jehoiada in Second uh, Chronicles 23. He had Hezekiah's uh, revival with included instruments and singing with the Levites, Josiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Every single one of them reinstituted this idea of worship and prayer, ministry to the Lord at the center of the church, and all of them, whew, revival hit. And can I just say, all the other things that we want for our city all come from revival, right? We want to see... Uh, the poor lifted up. We want to see the prisons emptied. We want to see radical social and cultural change. That doesn't come from our hard work. It comes from the presence of God getting poured out in regions, entire cities, entire states, entire nations. And what would have taken us 50 years of effort and power and all that stuff can take God like weeks and months. And it's amazing. And that's what we one, where the presence of Jesus dwells by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see salvation, healing, deliverance, miracles, and more. At Skyline, we've seen people saved, demons cast out, prodigals come home, marriages healed, people freed from addiction and bondage, and so much more. And all of this, right, all of this comes from his presence, his power, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing a song. And... Um, we're just going to close this morning. But I want to encourage you, if you heard those um, testimonies last week and you've got hunger in your heart, if you're wondering, how do I connect to this vision? I would just invite you to see this ministry that we've put together and say yes to it. Um, so I really felt uh, the Lord saying this morning, I want to I honor Tom and Shree Ward. Uh, what I love about Tom and Shree is that they have made this principle of showing up part of their life. And so Tom and Shree, when they're in town, they're here Sunday morning, Monday at noon, Wednesday night. And then it's the next week, Sunday morning, Monday at noon for prayer and worship, Wednesday night for prayer and worship. And, and Tom and Shree, I just love how you will not let any other thing in your life disrupt that. If you're out of town for business or you're on vacation, they show back up in town and guess what? They're here Sunday morning, Monday at noon, Wednesday night. And God honors that kind of faithfulness to his presence and to his bride in ways that, that will astound you. And I just think about, as our church, and what I love about, um, uh, we have a bunch of young people here, and I've seen in our young people, they're here Sunday mornings, and they're here Wednesday nights, and they're being early in the prayer room. They're just seeking God's presence. They're showing up. I just encourage you, if you have a heart desire for, for life change, just start showing up to places where his presence dwells. And that could be the altar you build on your porch every morning, on your back porch, where you open his word and you seek him. Show up there every single morning, but show up. The kingdom of God comes to those who show up, and we are trying to show up for the Lord. First Chronicles 16 says, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. 
not for a season of life. Too many Christians right now are running on the fumes of past revelation, past life change. They're like, oh, when I was in my 20s, God radically poured out, and I'm in my 40s and my 50s, and I'm just kind of sputtering along, and God's like, no, 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 my mercies are new. Every single morning, seek me again. Come back, keep coming, keep showing up. If you're dry and crusty right now, you're like, I'm in the wilderness. Stand up, seek the Lord, praise him, worship, call a friend, like whatever it takes. I just want to tell you, whatever it takes to find him, you just say, I will find him. (laughs) I'm not going to spend my life in lack. I'm going to keep going after him. David says this, Psalm 27, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. Amen. So stand to your feet. I want to pray over us and we're just going to sing. And I just want to spend a few moments just singing. I'm going to ask our prayer team um, to come up after we're done singing. And if you need prayer for anything after church, it's just a great time. They'll linger for, for prayer. But right now, I just want us to close our eyes. Would you just take a moment? Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart, right? This is just an honest self-assessment for your own heart. You don't need to shout this out loud or anything, but if you could be honest with the Lord right now, at what level are you seeking him right now? Like one to 10, put a, put a number on it for your own heart. What level are you seeking him right now? And this isn't about shame. This is about honesty, which leads to invitation for more of his presence, right? So if you're at a four, what does it look like to go to a five this week? Or maybe you're really ambitious. You're like, I want to hit a seven. Or maybe you're just like a crazy person. You're like, I want to go 10. Friends, there's an invitation. God's like, I will give you as much of me as you want. That's it. He's like, show me the container and I can fill it. And if your container's small right now, he's like, great. Let me fill that and build faith in you. And then that container will grow. It doesn't matter. Your container might be massive. And he's like, I have more than you could ever ask or imagine. So where are you at right now? And what does it look like to take that next step toward him? So Jesus, we just acknowledge your presence in your church. This all belongs to you. It doesn't belong to us. You're the groom. We're the bride. And we know how much you love your bride. And so we want to respond to your love with love, with passion, with enthusiasm, with excitement, with expectancy. Lord, we just want to be ready for you. We want to be ready for you. We want to keep our jars full of oil and our lamps lit in case we see any sign of your move. And when we do, we are off to the races. So Jesus, I pray that you would build in this place a new kind of tabernacle, that we could steward your presence on earth. And I pray that you would take the fire that you're building here and you would spread it to every church in town, Lord. I pray for every church in Oklahoma City that they would get captivated with your beauty, your grace, your goodness, your mercy, your love demonstrated on the cross, and that you would set the church of Oklahoma City ablaze 
because there are too many living in darkness in this city. And we just say, we won't allow that to happen. So rather than taking on ourselves to change it, we'll look to you, God. You alone can change that. So would you come in our generation and radically alter the future of this city? Jesus, you can do that. But it starts with us. Bring revival in our hearts right now. I pray that your heart is burning right now with that prayer. Jesus, bring revival in my heart. Because you can't give what you don't have. So bring it in me, Jesus.